You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Following the adventures of two would-be screenwriters, the documentary American Cannibal, The Road to Reality, chronicles their rise and fall as they sell their souls for the lure of money and a film resume. With us today are American Cannibal's directors Perry Grebin and Michael Nigro, who documented the train wreck production and sudden shutdown of this reality TV show produced by the promoter behind the Paris Hilton sex tape. Perry Grebin, Michael Nigro, welcome to Film School. Well, thank you very much. Very well put, by the way. Yes, very nice <laughs> Well, well, I just ripped off what you had online. Let's let's face it. I but, knew those words sounded familiar. Yeah. At the very least, man, just put up the front that it's real. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's, exactly. That's it. It's it's well, all about reality. my reality this here. This is reality-based radio. Yeah, we're, yes. we're right here. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so it's how are you guys? Spontaneity. Yeah. <laughs> what are you guys doing today? Are you are you just hanging out, waiting for our phone call, or are you? Uh... We have been doing that for the past couple of minutes. There's been a lot of interest in the movie thanks to this Virgin Territory audition that happened yesterday in New York, that Kevin Blatt is the guy behind the cannibal show in the movie. Uh-huh. He's also the guy who's doing uh, the show called Virgin Territory. The one they pitch in the film. Yeah. Yes. Now he's in... Two and a half years later, they're actually going through with it. So we, for <laughs> DVD Extra, covered the auditions, and it is just surreal. <laughs> it's really odd, because there's a part of Perry and myself that feels... This would not have happened if we didn't turn the camera on. Yeah. yeah. Two, two and a half years ago, I don't think this would have happened. And now, again, we're faced with turning the camera on and watching people behave differently. Yeah, yeah that's, that's one thing that the that film definitely brings out, is that the reality that we see presented through the camera and through the TV and through media, really, is just so much... It's, not, it's been edited, you know? It's been crushed and twisted and bent with music and graphics until it doesn't really resemble so much reality anymore. It's no longer fact. It's more like nonfiction. Well, what got you uh, started to make this documentary in the first place? What, why the interest in, in uh, reality television? Well, the two of us came from a TV background. We had seen these shows being presented. I worked in news for 10 years, and a lot of the stuff I saw was presented as this legitimate story-making stuff, and Michael had worked in narrative, and that means you know, like sitcoms and stuff like that. And a lot of it is just very... I want to say dumbed down, but it, it is a lot of lowest common denominator stuff out there, and we wanted to really find out why, how, how do these things get made, who goes in and pitches these things to what networks, and what happens then. So what we did, we started following writers. A lot of them were friends and friends of friends and going into pitch meetings. But after, I would say, about two weeks of this, I just turned to Perry and I said, we're changing everything. As soon as we turn on a camera, all reality breaks loose. It's right. not real. <laughs> and we basically said... Let's see what happens if we keep turning the camera on. At one point, I just said, we're steering the narrative here. This is oh, yeah. Absolutely, sure. we're absolutely steering the narrative. You point the camera in this direction or that direction, people are aware of the camera. They start changing. It's just very obvious. It happens, you know, at any, any big sporting event. You know, the Jumbotron shows these people watching a game, and suddenly, you know, they're famous for five seconds. Right, right. Did, did you intentionally uh, change the narrative? Did you get to you a point? You couldn't help it. It's yeah. like walking into the room with a lit bomb. But you did know, you... People did... suddenly are aware of it, and... 
whether or not we meant to change it, changed. And probably, like, I don't know if we're the only documentarians, but I don't hear a lot of it coming out of the documentary corner of the world where these things are turned out, you know, all from one factory, of course. You don't hear Michael Moore and people like that telling you that they've created entertainment out of real events. But as we were documenting entertainment made from real events, here we were making the same thing. So guilty as charged, we are coming clean and telling you. <laughs> we took 300 hours and, and combed it and bent it and twisted it into the best narrative that we could. Yeah. For 90 minutes. We went to a bunch of festivals in Europe, actually, and they hold Michael Moore up as this pure documentarian, which is, can I say crap on the air? You can say crap. That's, <laughs> that's it's, for, crap. it's forbidden. I, I that's just, the line. That's not true. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Relax on the mic. All right. <laughs> We're talking about American cannibal here. No, oh, no. Let me, get, let me get off my soapbox. No, no. I, I think this is, this is great because I've always looked at Michael Moore's documentaries as he's a showman and that sensibility just can't help but rub off on the rest of the film i think he's held up people want to look for the good and the bad right people look to michael moore for both the good and the bad and the good people i think see him as some kind of whistleblower in many ways and and he does shine a light on certain issues but to shine a light with an agenda is to misrepresent it and i also think anyone who sees a, a michael moore film has to know what they're walking into at this point there's not a whole lot of mystery as to where they're probably going to end up going with it no, you know that they do have a liberal liberal slant they have an anti-bush agenda slant but all that stuff aside there are people who buy into this just like they buy into the reality that's presented to them on the news and in television and in the rest of the documentary world right. it's not to say that you know march of the penguins is a giant liberal crusade those are just things, okay? Those well, are just in a way, it is. You know, whether they're unionized, whether they got their SAG cards, I don't, I can't speak for that. Uh, Gil Ripley and Dave Roberts were the two young writers that you follow through their travails as they move forward right. with American I, I, Cannibal. I, I, are are they involved with with Virgin Territory? Is this their gig? Yes and no. Gil Ripley and Dave Roberts no longer work together in the film. You do see them separating after right. the debacle that, that right. their show is, right. the Cannibal Show. But now Dave Roberts is deeply involved with Kevin Blatt again to make Virgin Territory, and yesterday the two of them stood up and gave a press conference in front of like eight networks, including CNN and Telemundo and, and Entertainment, Entertainment Tonight, Tonight and, and okay. Inside Edition. Okay, I just had to get that out of the way because you, you see one is reticent, the other one seems to have said, I'm in, I'm, I'm going for it, and, and that's how it played out. Yeah, okay. that's how it's playing out now. Okay. Gil is, I spoke to him this morning, actually, because there was a big story about his original Virgin Territory idea, Yeah, uh, the one they pitched in the film to Kevin Blatt before he decides he's going to take their other idea, the one about the cannibals. And Gil's like a guy who's trying to write and be creative. Right. And Dave is trying to feed his family. So there's a big difference. There's a vast divide between selling and selling out, right. according to, to those guys. Which you really bring up in at the very beginning of the film when they're meeting with the agency woman, and, and, and she says, yeah. Dave's got mouths to feed. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what kind of part did she play in bringing on their demise? In bringing uh, the, the break in their friendship. Do you think she was the uh, enabler in all this? No, I okay. don't. She was kind of a hands-off agent. I would say this, that the filmmakers were more responsible for getting Gil and Dave into meetings because we had the camera than yeah. she was. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, without and and, and in, in answer to your previous question, which was how much were Gil and Dave in on it, of the 12 writers we had, they were just the most charismatic and the more game. They saw that when we pitched to networks, can we follow you in with this camera and take take the pitch meeting, they saw the value in that because it legitimized them yeah. with the camera following them. And 
essentially what this documentary that became this kind of social experiment of how we were going to drive this narrative and how we're going to see what keeps happening as we turn the camera on, Gil and Dave kind of became our control group. And we didn't, I mean, we didn't tell them anything except like, oh, you guys have a pitch meeting here, or can we come in and follow you this pitch meeting? And or they would tell us, you, can't, you guys can't come to this meeting, or you can. Mm. So very much the camera was dictating the events, you know, like, could we or could we not be present? And if we weren't present, obviously it wasn't going to be in the documentary. Once we started realizing that, they were the focus. I mean, the documentary doesn't begin with the story you have in mind. It becomes the story that it becomes, because documentary will present a path that you'll either go down or you won't. You choose one path, you're not choosing another. And as long as we were covering them for two and a half years, you're seeing only one narrative thread, and those are the choices we made. Yeah. And not them. You know, like they made plenty of other choices that we just didn't see or that we did see and we felt didn't drive the story we eventually started editing. Right. And until they met Kevin Blatt, the movie was largely about writers pitching, which yeah. I'm sorry to say is hopelessly boring. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I want to make sure we've done a good job here of explaining sort of in the broader context. American Cannibal is about these two writers who are pitching ideas, who come from the documentary film world and who are beginning to kind of hone in on the idea that they may be pitching, end up pitching a reality show because that's what's hot. That's what's selling. And this Actually, is what two, the two writers are from the sitcom world. Yes, oh, yes. I'm, I'm sorry. Cause when they're talking to the agent, you're right. I'm sorry. You'll, you'll have to excuse my, no, co-host. no. I mean, what, what, what the one, what they do <laughs> say in the, they do. I know. Yeah, come I've, on. Mike. I've blown it again. What they do say with the agent, we're coming from a documentary perspective. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, th- that was at the IFC pitch. They were trying to tie in their reality show to the film channel. Yes. When you go in and you pitch a network, you better make sure you know what they're going to buy. And they right. were just trying to shoehorn this reality show idea to IFC just because right. they had a couple pitches there. So right. they were more narrative sitcom writers, but right. the television world at that time was only, they were only taking reality show ideas. Right. And so they were forced to either stop writing or not pitch at all. They basically had to start selling what people were buying. Couldn't get into pitch meetings with a sitcom idea, but everybody wanted to hear their next reality show idea. Right. Do you think the writer's strike had anything to do with the rise of reality television? Without doubt it did. Okay. This is still a big issue. This is one of the reasons we interviewed the president of the Writers Guild at that time, because Daniel Petrie Jr. was the president of the Writers Guild West. He is a big advocate for writers' rights, but, you know, at the time reality TV was taking over, there was supposedly no writing going on in those shows, which is true in the sense that nobody was actually writing with a pen. Mm -hmm. But basically you shoot 800 pages of show and cut it down to 60 pages. So when I say pages, I mean hours. Right. That's a lot of stuff. Somebody has to find the story in that narrative and show it. And if it's the editor, well, then the editor is basically writing the show based on previously made material, adapting it, which is a writer's job. Now, Michael and I have written feature screenplays ourselves, and I have to say, like, there's an argument for both directions, but I do believe that these shows would not exist if the story could not be created by somebody, and that is a writer's job. So in many ways, I think that the, the, the writers going on strike provided a forum for these kind of backward-written shows to get started, mm-hmm. or at least get a, lot of, get a lot of notice and traction. Plus, they're really cheap. 
We're speaking with Perry Greben and Michael Nigro, the directors of American Cannibal. I'm what? the better-looking one. Okay. <laughs> I, I can see from here. <laughs> yeah, right. we can tell. Thank you. What was the most difficult thing for you guys to shoot? What situation were you in where you just wanted to slowly leave the back door? Uh, I think I know which scene you're talking about. <laughs> There's a moment in the middle of the film where Kevin Blatt is, I guess you'd say he's the provocateur, he's the ringmaster of the whole thing. He's the guy who sucks these two writers into his world. Right. He comes from the Paris Hilton world. He decides to host a party to celebrate his new TV show. That which he would, for him. He, he would not have had that party if, if we weren't there. I'm okay. convinced of that. Uh, I never asked and, him, but I'm convinced that. And, and Kevin Blatt says he's the accidental pornographer. Well, yeah, he also calls himself the P.T. Barnum of something else that begins with a P that I can't yeah. probably say <laughs> on your show. Yeah. So he definitely is a shameless and sleazy promoter. He's also really honest, and he's also really good documentary. As much as, yeah. you know, he, a lot of yeah. people find him repulsive, I have to say, does it make you stop watching? No. no. He's, a little, fa- he's a fascinating train well, wreck. He is, what you, he is in, in some ways, the confirmation of what you assume a lot of uh, reality or TV people are pornographers like. are like, yeah. And or, or pornographers, yeah, are like. Yeah. And he, he sort of embodies that. He fills the bill, yeah. as they say. The party that he throws is this sort of circus. It's like a nasty pornographer's party. He invites these two sitcom writers to come celebrate <laughs> what they're going to do with his new show. It's just before the show is going to start shooting. And the documentary crews are there. We're shooting everything we can find. Everybody, of course, thinks that we're in the porn business because we have a camera and we're at a porn party. Yeah. The two writers wind up in the VIP room with Kevin Blatt. In a couple of minutes, a woman walked in, introduced herself to Kevin Blatt, and literally starts taking her clothes off. I don't know what was going on. I'm standing in the corner of the room trying to be as invisible as possible, unfortunately far from the door. And <laughs> the music is blaring and thumping. I have the boom. I'm standing up, and I see that she's... Yeah, Michael's got the microphone com- in his hand. Completely naked, and I look over at Perry. Yeah. And Perry's shouting at me, What movie are we making? <laughs> at that point, we had realized we had fallen down this hole that yeah. Kevin Blatt had dug for everybody. And yeah. the camera pans over to the writers, who basically mirror my reactions, except I'm the one shooting it. I'm making a porn movie now. I've suddenly right. devolved into a guy shooting a woman, taking off her clothes for the camera. And I won't go into the details of what yeah. else yeah. goes on I'm in that sure. room, but that was definitely the moment where I felt that I had been you, taken to the wrong side. Well, yeah, yeah you, I was just going to say it has sort of a rite of passage feel to it. Yeah. This is what we do. This is like in a, a biker gang. You know, They make you do something horrible in front of a bunch of people, and you're part of the group. Oh, now. yeah, nasty sacrificial ritual. We definitely <laughs> lost our innocence on that. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I just got to get to Jean Baudrillard. What has become real now for people is not real. Did you get the feeling, did you just have all these layers of, of, uh, of non-reality just of stacking up? Yeah. yeah Constantly. Um, I mean, you're talking about the society, the spectacle. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. This is something that we were aware of uh, all the way through, just by, like we said earlier, with the camera changing the way reality is presented. You turn the camera this way or that way, you've already changed it. The events themselves, though, have become different. We went from Baudrillard, actually, early to look at stuff that Daniel Borston wrote. And he wrote this wonderful book called The Image, uh-huh. Making of Pseudo-Events in America. And I have to say, all these press conferences and all this stuff, these TV shows that are hyped, they're all pseudo-events. They're all created for the purposes of the media broadcasting them to audiences that are willing to watch them. It's this big collusion between audiences and producers and the people who are making these shows are desperate for ratings, just like the people on them are desperate for attention. 
and the people who are watching them are desperate for feeling like they're represented in the real world of TV. And as it stands, it seems like as a culture we've become so good, so good at imitating reality yeah. that we'll basically take the fake version over the real one yeah. every single time. It's faster paced. And, you know, you it's take colorful, any, it's, any, it's, it's shiny, any, yeah. TV, any TV news story, every documentary film, every reality TV show has been edited to within an inch of its life just to grab eyeballs. But when you produce and direct real life for maximum watchability, the result isn't so much fact, but it's pretty much nonfiction. Yeah, that's something we come back to all the time, and yeah. that's compliments of our friend Daniel Borston. He's, I guess, sort of a contemporary of Baudrillard as well as... You know, Neil Gabler wrote something not too long ago about that, too, where he wrote a book in 1998 before the advent of reality TV called Life the Movie about how people really didn't feel redeemed or validated or even, like, useful unless a camera was aimed at them. And this has become so important to the younger generation where if they don't go out at night and get photographed, yeah. they feel like they've misspent their evening. MySpace and Facebook and a lot of websites celebrate the so-called social connection, but it's also a measure of wanting to be watched and wanting to watch other people. And, and that, that's where the title American Cannibal comes in, where it's more of a metaphor yeah. about the sacrifices and how we're just gorging our, ourselves on airing our laundry, on news, on memoirs, on talk shows. And we're gobbling each other up as entertainment. And this film coincides also with the release of a report, I think it was last week, talking about folks born after 1980 suffer from pathological narcissism. I don't know if you guys had a chance to I, look well, at that. Just, yeah. yeah, I looked at that a little bit, and mm -hmm. I think naming it is a really good idea because it will suddenly begin to have uh, a little bit of weight. You know, mm -hmm. once you, you talk about a phenomenon and name it, it's become mainstream. You know, it's sort of like yeah. if, if there's a pathological problem here, then maybe the medical community will take a look <laughs> at it. Maybe the media yeah. will represent it in some way. But, you know, the media is very interested in making you either laugh or scream in terror. Right. In any case, you don't want to turn off the TV. You don't want to turn off the radio. Right. Hi, kids. You, what you want to do is, you know, keep people watching. That's important to remember when you're watching anything, listening to anything that comes across as news or real or documentaries that, you know, say this is all about reality. And I would say, you know, with a movie like American Cannibal, which is it's just, it's one of these movies that will uh, live or die by word of mouth. It really does have a message, and that if you'd like this message, tell your friends, get people out to see this movie, because I don't think anybody's really done something like this before, where it's yep. a grand social experiment. Yep. You look at somebody like Morgan Spurlock, who did an experiment basically on himself, which was yep. a contrived event. He just gorged himself and then... And then Not to it. diminish it. I, I love the movie, but yeah. we did this with... Thousands of people. We did this yeah. with our culture, with our media, to see how people would respond. And I'm hoping that this small little movie that could, yeah. will, people will see it. The film is American Cannibal. Perry Grebin, Michael Nigro, thanks for being on Film School. Mike, Nathan, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.